Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. On this episode of We Happy Few, Amy Donaldson and I visit with World War II veteran Staff Sergeant Stanley Nance and his great-granddaughter Madeline, who recently discovered some of the incredible things he did while serving in the United States Army, in a unit the Germans dubbed the Ghost Army. This was recorded in Staff Sergeant Nance's home, with many family members listening in. So if you have to describe for people what the Ghost Army is, how do you describe it? It was a deceptive unit in World War II that used um, radio trickery, inflatable tanks, um, sound effects, and other special effects to um, deceive the Germans and helped shorten the war and save multiple thousands of lives in World War II. I was, I was married in 1942. And they drafted me in October 1942. And that's where I went from my home to Camp Oak, Louisiana, to where I had my basic training. When I finished my basic training, as I mentioned, they sent me to Fort Knox, Kentucky for a nine-week study and learning experience in radio code with the uh, using the, the Morse code mode. And so it's interesting there that we had nine weeks there. I had my wife there all that time. And uh, when I finished the course, I knew that I had good marks because one of the tests, I was the only one that got 100% on that. But uh, when I went to clear my desk out to go home, uh, one of the three instructors appeared, came into the room, and he said to me, he said, Nance, he said, I may as well tell you, you graduated the top student here in this schooling that we had. And so I just took it as it came. And I, like I said, I enjoyed because I was interested in what I was doing. And what I was doing, I did well because that's the kind of a person I am. So, uh, how did you get involved then with the 23rd? So, we went on desert maneuvers. So, we went out to the Mojave Desert and started working around the, Mo the Mojave Desert for, in the sand dunes. And we hadn't been there very long, probably four days, five days. Our day was finished. The men in my outfit were gathered in a foliage area around a open con confine that uh, 
that there are vehicles. And so my vehicle was one of those that were there, and I would always get in my vehicle at night because I had a radio. I would put it on FM and listen to the KNX or KFI or KPO, one of the California stations, because I liked to hear the, the dance music that they would put on. And it was probably 9.30, between 9.30 and 10 o'clock, that all of a sudden a Jeep appeared <laughs> with something that uh, in a hurry, he was in a hurry and he scattered gravel around as he stopped. And he shouted over to the groups in the thickets and he said, you have a man around here by the name of Nance? And they all shouted, he's in the half track. So the first thing I knew, there was a man, head of a man that appeared on the uh, outside of my half track looking in. And he said, are you Nance? And I said, yes. He said, get your equipment and come with me. So I hopped in the uh, Jeep with him, and he was an officer, a ranking officer, and he, and I said to him, I said, what's this all about? And he said, all I know is I'm supposed to have you pick you up and, and have you in San Bernardino by 7 o'clock in the morning. That's the only instruction he had received, and that's what he told me. And off we went to California, city of Pasadena. And so we drove all night, and we just barely got to a, a barracks just outside of uh, Pasadena. There was a old army barracks, I guess, of, 19, of World War One. There was a nice brick office and two barrack uh, structures behind. So I went in there, opened the door and went in there, and I stood by the inside of the opening of the door, and I uh, looked around. There were probably 15 or 20 desks in there. It was one big room with desks. And one of the soldiers at one of the desks raised his hand up and motioned me to come to his desk. So I went to his desk and he just handed me a, a white envelope and said, he said, here's your tickets to... Uh, Camp Forest, Tennessee. This man will take you down to the depot and he'll show you which train to get on. Now that's the only warning. I had no papers. I had nothing. I could have taken off for Timbuktu and then never known me <laughs> where I was. It was my best opportunity if I didn't like the army to get out and not have no one could find me. So I said to him, I, I stood there for a minute and I and uh, just looked at him with the envelope in my hand. I didn't look at it or anything. He looked at me and he said, can I help you further? And I said, yes. I said, what's this all about? He stretched back in his chair and he said, don't you know? <laughs> and I said, I know nothing. He says, all I've been told is when you came in is to give you a white envelope with tickets to Tennessee. And so that's all the information I had. I had no papers. I had nothing to go on except what they were, I was told, and that is, 
we're shipping you're here now we're shipping you out to another barrack. But, but so, were you were you worried or scared at all? Usually when no. I was twenty four years of age and just off of a mission to from Tahiti, so uh, <laughs> I was enjoying it. I was enjoying it because I had a big question is what is going on? And nobody can tell me what was going on. And so I just took it as it came, got in the train. He, he showed me which train to take. I got in it and headed for the uh, Pine Camp in Tennessee. No, uh, Camp Forest, Tennessee. When I got there, the train stopped, and I got off of the train, and there was one man there, and he asked me if I was Nance, and I said yes. He says, come with me, and then he raised his hand to motion two or three of the other men that were at the very portals of the train, <clears throat> watching if I would uh, come from that. And we headed for camp. And Pine Camp is quite a big camp with these soldiers' barracks and the person. My, my my driver drove up to one of them, and and uh, I got out and I said, uh, "I've got to call my wife and tell her where I am." She doesn't know where I am, and she would like to know that I've been transferred. He said, don't worry, the Army will take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> did they? Did, did the Army let her know? Well, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were. Anyway, uh, every unit that I was around in the Army was very efficient. Went in the barracks with them, and there were about a hundred men that was uh, seated at the front end of a big auditorium, and there were several men in front of, of the group talking with them. And I remember the first thing I heard any of them say, one of them said to the group, can you keep a secret? And he looked at them all. They, they were stunned, I guess I was. Can you keep a secret? And so uh, he said, if you can't, there's the door. So we listened to what they had to say. And the most of it was that we're in a secret outfit. As far as exactly what we were going to do, they didn't tell us at that particular time. And we learned soon after in one of the meetings that this is a group of special men, special trained, that were going to go into the army, going to go into the war and confuse the enemy. So I was a, uh, a radio operator. I had been trained. I was a good one. I could put out a message in about, of about 60 words a minute, and I was fast. Most, uh, most everybody would be lucky to put out 40 words a minute. But I learned how to speed, and I was then put in... A, as I mentioned, I was given a truck all by myself, and you may have heard the name of it. I even named it Kilowatt Command with a K. <laughs> <laughs> and so my training was brief there because I knew what I was going to do. Uh, I was a radio operator. And all I did was 
take the the ten and a half the half ton truck which I was given. The truck that I was given was a weapons carrier, normally used to carry weapons around the battlefield. And on the inside there was a radio set. The strength was three ninety-nine and I was considered a high-speed operator, so I would practice all I could on send, sending fake messages and things like that by using the key and going fast because I knew that's what I was going to do is send messages when I was assigned to a unit to, to, to do what I was supposed to do in the... Uh, uh, in the war. So we left there after about two weeks, maybe a little bit more, and went to Camp Kilmer, New Jersey. And there we got ready to go overseas. And so I had probably three or four days that I was open to do whatever I wanted. So anyway, we left Kilmer on a war vessel, or on a tramp ship, whatever, and uh, headed for Bristol, England. And they happened to put us there's a flotation of ships, and there were at least 200 ships. It was a big one. And unfortunately, they put us in the corner at the tail end. We were the only ones in the corner. And that's dangerous because we had a U-boat uh, a scare and the uh, I'm trying to try and think of the navy vessel that that takes care of those things and goes around and uh, drops uh, depth charges. Yeah. Around and they were dropping these things and they were exploding all around us. So there must have been a U boat scare and we didn't see any firing or anything. And so we headed out and we landed in Bristol. And I remember one thing in Bristol and that is when we landed, all the men on the boat were either T4s or T5s. And they had their uh, rank, uh, 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 insignia on their shoulders. And the stevedores there in, uh, in Bristol said, who's running this ship? <laughs> we said the we shouted down the privates. <laughs> but anyway, I was given my car, and we went back to a misty old barracks, uh, and there we waited until the invasion. And then I went over, I took my truck to the, uh, to the send-off place there in England and uh, left it for the, them to put it on a boat. And I went over with the group on the... Anyway, it was a landing ship of some kind that I was on that we went over to the beaches of 
Carmody and there we got off on the beach and they gave me my car and I took it and I was the leader of a 11 men but uh, very little did I work with them because everybody was scattered. They had their own things to do and I had mine to do with the assignments that I was given. Sergeant Nance, how soon after D-Day did you come ashore? Oh, it was a couple of weeks. No, about 10 days. Okay. We had to wait till they had a, uh, a good foothold on the, uh, the area where, they, mm-hmm. where we landed. Because this is where, this is uh, on the beaches where the soldiers landed. And I'm telling you, it was, it was a mess seeing those pillboxes out there. They hadn't done anything to pulverize them or to, uh, there are still pillboxes on the top of those hills. They're still there. The soldiers in with rifles. <laughs> and they were picking off the men down there on the beach like they were uh, turkeys on a turkey shoot. They really didn't do what they should have done because there should not have been that many people killed, the soldiers killed, on the invasion. They should have pulverized. They had the the ships to do it. They had the airplanes to do it. And yet there were pillboxes right on the top of the beaches, overlooking the beaches, to where, as I mentioned, it's just a turkey shoot for them. And, they, and you, you've seen that on the invasion uh, films that have been shown. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. What beach did you come ashore? I didn't come ashore on a beach. I I drove my vehicle uh, off of the boat on a very rickety, (laughs) (laughs) make-believe scaffold. Because my vehicle was there, so I got in and I very, very cautiously Went over, uh, went over the ramp and then into Cherbourg. And the thing is, there were our, our our people were our trucks were so scattered that I just kept going, and I got went in about five miles, and I was stopped by an MP that said, "Where do you think you're going?" And he says. There's a big battle right there in St. Lowe. I said, you go into that and you'll be killed. <laughs> so we turned around and went back to where we could find some more units. So, but anyway, I drove uh, my Jeep off and joined the other men of our outfit. But the thing, one thing that uh, concerned me was, as the right there on the uh, among the boats that were going to land on the scaffold was a boat of tanks, and I said to my buddy that was with me, he says, "I, I said, I think I'll stick around. I've got to see this of oh, tanks going up on that." 
scaffold that I had gone on. <laughs> but anyway, that's the beginning of the invasion. And uh, uh, from there on, we just went as we were assigned. And uh, I joined the, the main group of the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. I joined the signal people there and was assigned to my officers who would go with me and direct me what I was to do and give me the messages and who I was sending the messages to. And so from there on, it was just a daily activity of uh, uh, going through the routine. But there was one thing that was interesting to me, and that is that, that General Eisenhower, who was the commanding general of the Allied troops, he worked together with General Bradley, who was the head of the 12th Army Group. The 12th Army Group were, was consisted of the 1st, the 3rd, the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th, and 9th Armies. That was his command. And General Eisenhower was a very, very intelligent person. He was commander of the American troops. And what his uh, goal was, is for him to become the commander of the German army. <laughs> and he did it. He used the uh, ghost army to break up any strength of numbers of the German army and disperse them because we would take our tanks in one area, we would move, the, move rapidly to another area, and the Germans were confused. They didn't know who, who we were, and yet we were working among them, and the war was over. They still didn't know who we were. They had not uh, found out anything about us, and yet we were working with them all this time. So what we would do is we would uh, take over a division of tanks. They would move out. They would leave me in there as a... I would take over their radio command, and I would have to do it slowly and deliberately so I could get the very rhythm that of that person that I was taking place in his vehicle uh, so it would not be detected by the German army, those who were listening in. And that's what they were good at. They had people monitoring what we were doing all the time, and they were monitoring what I did. And uh, and so I would wait for any of the officers to come and hand me a uh, blank form, army form of messages. And there would be a message written on there that I was to send. So I would get on my radio, and up in the corner would be a code name, who was to pick it up, who I was sending it to. So I would put that on the radio first, and then I would go ahead and send the, the, uh, the message. So I was always sending a message. And, uh, <laughs> <But> <laughs> once, you... once while the, we would get a day or two to where we would go back to a camp and 
play play uh, volleyball or something. So it wasn't all all a hardship. So they gave us time off, and, and uh, during the lull of a of a, of a uh, German exercise. But it was interesting that that during the thrust across France that there was never a concentration of power of that was put together by the Germans, never. The only concentration of power that they ever used was in the Ardennes breakthrough. And that's what they were trying to do all during the army is to get those breakthroughs to where they could go and do what they wanted. They were never able to do that because of the way the the uh, command did with the uh, did with the ghost army. So, so how many how many radio operators did you have to impersonate? Well, I know of there were there were two more that worked around me maybe a couple of times during during the year I was there. But remember that that uh, because of the way that Eisenhower and Bradley worked worked the Ghost Army with the regular army is taking place, the regular army that we worked it didn't even know who we were because we wore those patches. And when I took over, when I would take over a, say, a, a, a fifth, uh, the, the, the radio command vehicle of the 5th Armored Division, I would have their, their patch on. <laughs> and so I would just go in and I said, I'm taking over your radio. But I have to learn what you're doing, and I have to monitor you so I can ex- get exactly the rhythm that you have. So uh, so anyone that's listening to this radio don't know that it's someone new who didn't put on. And so I worked on his radio, then I would take over his radio, and then they would be ready to go out at 9 o'clock at night. They, that's when they would all move out and leave the space open. And I I would be the only one there. So I would get in my vehicle and start uh, operating my radio as a 5th Armored Armored Division uh, radio unit. And people wouldn't know the difference because I I was trained how to take over a radio and mimic him exactly so the Germans wouldn't, listening, wouldn't know that there was somebody else moving in. So, for example, the 5th the fifth Armored Division is in, in a spot. They would leave. You would take over the and radio. Then, then the trucks would come in with bales of uh, um, with rubber, rubber tanks, with rubber tanks. Of, of tanks and and uh, artillery and things such as that, they would come in and they would have a diagram of what every, where everybody, and what, where the jeeps were, where the tanks were, and anything else in there, artillery, anything else that may be in that compound, where the entire 5th Armor would be. And then they would set up their tanks, and everything else exactly the same as they were. So any air reconnaissance would see that here's its fifth armored division and listen to the radio. And they know all that the fifth armored division was still there operating. And so that would tie up two or three maybe divisions of the German army. The real... Fifth Armored Division was on its way to surround them or something 
with a couple of artillery uh, divisions, they could easily come in and annihilate. And that's what they did. They took 200,000 prisoners by gobbling up the uh, areas and... uh, So now I I had heard that you told your family that you used to blow up tanks in the war. No, that wasn't you. Okay. I I may have, I told them that after, but I, I was just teasing them because I I was, I was a radio man. I wasn't, the 603rd engineers took care of of, of those things. And by the way, Every truck that uh, uh, that carried any kind of a dummy, they had a vial of a glass vial about that long underneath the dashboard. That if anything happened, they were to crush that and get out of their truck because no one that there was there were they were instructed. We were all instructed that the Germans were not to get a hold of any of our rubber dummies. When they were finished, they would deflate the the uh, artillery or the tanks or whatever, and then they would fold them up to where there were tanks that two, two people could take out, but they were 90 pounds. <laughs> they were heavy, the tanks or any other unit. And they would just throw them in the back of a of a two and a half ton truck, and then there'd be someone in there that would uh, p- uh, pile them. Yeah. So, so, so who and so who did it? Everything was very very orderly, and just they knew what they were doing. Yeah. They had been trained to do that. But the six hundred third would inflate. Inflate the tanks and the jeeps and the the, the yes. fake or the dummy. Six oh third would handle everything, and I would I, I I would meet none of them except the I would see the men that would come in or the men that would go out, the tail end of those that were leaving a division that I was taking over. Uh, so I I took mo- over most of the. Uh, of the tank units that were replaced. So the Germans saw the fifth division with all of, with what you described as inflatable. That would be night that they would move out. Yeah. And they would move out maybe 25 miles or so. But um, we could move, the ghost army could could, uh, remove a whole army in three hours, where it would take maybe a half a day for the yeah. <laughs> for the real tank division to go where they were going. There would be two or three hundred men, including the six hundred third, but they would handle all that stuff. I didn't I didn't have anything to do with that, nor did I associate anyway with them, because I would be instructed what I had to do and I would follow orders. So when did you start telling your family about this experience? When I got home, I, well, it's interesting that Janae, she was in the fourth grade. She came home from school. So something must have been said about World War II because she still had the books in hand and laid them down. And she came to me and she said, Dad, what did you do in the Army? So I told her, she said, oh, dad, you didn't do that. <laughs> That's exactly her word. <laughs> oh, dad, you didn't do that. So what, what, what can I say? So then, so, so Madeline, if you could introduce yourself, how you're related to Sergeant Nance and kind of how you got involved with this story. Grandpa's 101 now and at his 100th birthday, so before all of this at his 100th birthday, he had a big family birthday party where everyone was there. And just on a coffee table, he had Rick Byers' book on the ghost army. 
and they were talking about it and I was I'm a history buff and so I was interested in it but I kind of had the same attitude where I'm like yeah this didn't happen like you're just exaggerating and um and so when I had some time I did some research into it and sure enough it was everything he said and more and so I started to do even more research and about the second thing I saw uh, was this ghost army tour led by Rick Beyer. And so I was able to be family representative for grandpa and went on a two week tour of Europe with um, five countries where we followed the footsteps of the ghost army. And um, during the anniversary of Operation Bettenberg, there was the first historical marker ever placed um, in honor of the Ghost Army, and it was dedicated while we were there. So I did that, and then I just kept doing my project because um, I've done History Fair for three years now, and um, this is National History Day. And so after that tour, I'm like, well, I've done all this research and I went on this big thing. Why not do this? And so I did it during my ninth grade year. And, and, what, and what did you do? You, what is it? What is it? Okay, yeah. So that's big exhibit. <laughs> and so National History Day competition is something I was required to do for my seventh and eighth grade English and history classes. And then ninth grade, I had a different class, but I still want to do it on my own. So um, I did it. And it's just, it's a national competition where you do, there's different ways you can do a history project, but I chose to do an exhibit. And we went to a regional competition. I advanced to state. I went to state. I advanced to nationals. And while it's at nationals, I won the World War II History Award. So that was really exciting. But um, yeah. And, and so just because this is a podcast and we'll make sure that we have pictures, but it's an incredible display and we won't the pictures won't do it justice. But uh, but there's actually even some secrets built into the display, which is yeah. pretty cool when you think about the, the Ghost Army and what they did. I couldn't figure out how to do it with the secrecy because it's just, I did it. Like I was trying to figure out how to do a like physical representation, like maybe building my exhibit into a tank, but then it felt a little too just generalized military, not secretive. And so I was trying to figure it out. And then finally I came up with an idea to use invisible ink and UV lighting. So that when you flip the switch, the secrets of the ghost army are illuminated and it's it's really cool when people see it. Um, How does it impact you to know that that your that what you were researching was your grandfather? Uh, it was really big for me. Um, it kept me motivated. It wasn't just a history project. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't just something I'm interested in. It is something I'm interested in, but it like gave me a motivation to know like my great grandfather has lived this and that. I mean, family history, it's just like, that's something, learning history that really nobody, like when my family sees this exhibit, they're surprised by this because they don't know anything about what grandpa did because it was only declassified 20, 30 years ago. And so 1996. And so. And Sergeant Nance, how do you. How do you feel about your service and the opportunity that, that you had to serve, not only in the war, but also in this incredible unit? Well, let's say this, that after the war was over and that we knew the fighting had stopped, we were not finished. We were taken to the, to the coast where a ship was waiting for us, and we were all gathered together, all 1,100 of us were gathered together, in a large uh, hall there, and they told us that we were not through yet, that we had kept the secret, that the Germans had not found anything about us, and that we would be heading for Japan. We would have two weeks, and then we would be heading 
for Japan for an invasion of their North Islands. And we were, that was our next assignment. But when we were in uh, uh, Camp Forest, when we were in uh, Pine Camp, New York, that's when they dropped the bombs. And so we listened to that and we knew it was over. So they just told us, we'll, we're, uh, we'll, we'll let you go home. We're through with you. But they said, you've got to plead so we know that what you did in this army is secret because we, would, we will be using it again and we don't want anyone to know what we did. So that was the last information that we had that they would be using these, this kind of a tactic again and it worked so well because the our unit went by Signal Company Special, 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, and that's all we used. The term Ghost Army didn't come into play until about 40 years after the war was over. And uh, these authors did so much scouting to get all the information they could about the Ghost Army. Uh, they ran across what the United States had, what the United States Army had ran, had run into, and that is that the German uh, high command had used the word ghost army themselves several times. It was referred to as though a group of spirits or something was uh, <laughs> phantom <laughs> was was helping the Americans win the war, and so uh, that's when the go the word ghost army came up, and so these authors picked it up. That's how. <laughs> So we've got all the, uh, the first book, however, that was written by Gwaine was Secret Soldiers. And then the, the next three or four that came out was the Ghost Army of World War One, the Ghost Two. Army of the ETO, or the Ghost Army, and wow. so on. And how do you feel about how do you feel about your service? A victory. <laughs> my, my all this and the, the information I've given today, none of that was ever given to my wife. She never received the delicate parts of what I did in Europe in the war. She knew I was in the uh, I was a radio operator. And in, in a secret uh, military unit that that uh, fought against the the German army, so she, she wasn't that interested in the war itself. So you kept that secret. I kept. I kept it pretty <laughs> close. <laughs> Now you got permission to tell. Yeah, yeah. It's now classified, so it's right, yeah. season yeah. four. <laughs> Please. Madeline, um, do you feel like you uh, have more interest in the in military or in serving since doing this? Um, I felt like I've gotten more interested in just the history portion of the military. Um, just that there's still a lot more from World War II that many people don't know. I mean, this is a huge part of World War II that nobody knew about until just recent years, what, 75 years after D-Day, and it's just, I want to know more about World War II, and it's also kind of like I want to take my own time doing it because it surprises me, but it makes sense. But I was never taught this in my history class, and nobody's taught this in their history class. And 
I've learned a lot from just this one unit in World War II. And so it's like, what else are they not teaching us in history class? And so I just really want to learn more. Um, and I have learned a lot through this because I didn't know a ton about World War II. I wasn't a war geek until, I guess now you can call me one. But. <laughs> did, did you, do you think of your grandfather as a hero? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think of all the veterans that I met as a hero. I have adopted like eight grandpas now. So um, I, out of the 15 veterans of the Ghost Army alive, um, I interviewed eight of them. And so they're all very dear to me and my grandpa especially, but they're just, they're my heroes and they're my role models for a lot of the things. And so, yeah. Well, I'm greatly thrilled that my great-granddaughter has still has a great interest in this and is keeping it alive. Yes. This should have died <laughs> years ago. Uh, and I'm really proud of what she's done because she has handled it so professionally. She, she has really done that, and I'm just proud of her and her mother. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.